0: listening to civil war talk radio if you have a question or comment about our program please send an email to prokopovich g at ecu edu that's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z g at ecu edu now back to civil war talk radio
1: welcome to civil war talk radio i'm jerry prokopovich It is a beautiful Wednesday evening in June 2020 here in Greenville, North Carolina at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road. Not in the Brewster Building tonight like last week. I'm back home. We're still... Trying to stay away from campus in the great pandemic of two thousand and twenty, so I'm here not speaking for anyone who lives at two hundred and five Oxford Road except myself. Not speaking for East Carolina University. Uh, everything I say is my own. Likewise, my guest speaks for himself. It is um, in the past week the the next shoe has dropped in the. East Carolina uh, plans for reopening in the fall. We've been waiting to find out what we're going to be doing as professors in September. And it turns out what we'll be doing in September is recovering from August because uh, they have decided to start classes on August 10 this year, which is about three weeks earlier than normal, and end the semester at Thanksgiving. So there will be no travel home and back at the Thanksgiving break that will hopefully reduce some uh, of the risk students will have. They've cut out the two-day fall break, which is a a pale imitation of spring break. No one goes anywhere for fall break. And uh, most importantly, they have uh, set up block scheduling so that we will have an entire class completed in eight weeks instead of the usual 15 by having twice as long uh, each class meet for twice as long, two hours and 15 minutes. And that uh, strikes me as a, a the biggest challenge so far, is how to hold the student's attention for two hours and 15 minutes at a time. Certainly we'll have to take a break in the middle, given that I'm a 61-year-old male, we'll probably have to take three breaks during the class. Uh, some listeners will know exactly what I mean. But two hours and 15 minutes is a long time to hold anyone's attention, including mine. I occasionally get emails asking me to talk less at the start of the show and get on with the interview. And I certainly agree that the you're here, and I am too, to hear uh, what our guest has to say about his or her book, not to hear me ramble. But I've also learned that the amount of time allotted to the interview turns out to be just about the right amount for keeping one's attention span peaked. If you go too much longer, it starts to fade. Two hours and 15 minutes is way long, and uh, how to change it up will be a challenge, especially as I've also learned the uh, one of the classes I'll be teaching in American military history, uh, enrolled 55 students right away before they realize what the plans are going to be. They've since put a limit of 50 students on face-to-face classes and anything over that will have to meet online because the rooms aren't big enough to hold 50 students at social distance so uh so i'm gonna have to teach these students online i don't know how i'm going to do it yet i'm not thrilled about it but i'm sure I will find a way and actually i'm sort of looking forward to the challenge of trying to make the class workable in an online format but the real big news of the week, of course, and it's affected many people around the country. I hope everybody is safe and uh, and that their property is safe as well, wherever they are. Uh, the big news has been the, uh, the tumultuous uh, civil unrest triggered by the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. There have been protests around the country, including here in Greenville, North Carolina, specifically relevant to this show on Sunday night. Uh, a few days ago, there was a large and peaceful protest march, uh, and I'm speaking from personal observation, not not media accounts. After the march, uh, most people went home, me included. And at that point, uh, tensions escalated with those who stayed behind. Uh, some protesters went to the Confederate monument on the Pitt County Courthouse grounds in downtown Greenville. This, uh, you can look it up online, it's a bog-standard Confederate monument, a pillar with a soldier figure on the top and the inscription, Our Confederate Dead on the front. What was interesting uh, to me was that protesters used spray paint to draw a single line through the word Confederate. They didn't tag the whole monument. They didn't spray paint all over it or all over anything else in the area. Just one single line through one word. So I don't know what was in the hearts and minds of others in that crowd who went on to break shop windows, but whoever very carefully uh, chose to deface the monument in that fashion was clearly making a political statement. And I will say, uh, I, I think it's a statement whose time has come. You can certainly hear people defend Confederate monuments saying they want to preserve history, but as a I told a TV reporter who interviewed me today, this particular monument isn't history, it's fake history. It implies that Pitt County reveres its Confederate dead, but doesn't give a damn about the men from Pitt County, white and black, who died while serving in the 1st and 2nd North Carolina Union Infantry, or the USCT, or the United States Navy, and gave their lives for their actual country. So that monument in downtown Greenville makes my job as a history professor harder because it inculcates this false understanding of the division and strife that took place in Pitt County in eastern North Carolina during the Civil War. Now, I would not want Edward Pollard's book, The Lost Cause, that he wrote in 1866, to be removed from the university library. I wouldn't want Dunning School reconstruction uh, histories written in the early 20th century to be removed they should stay there so scholars can teach how people used to view the war and reconstruction through a white supremacist filter that we don't use anymore. But just because I want those books to stay in the library doesn't mean that I'd want them to be taught or their theories to be taught to eighth grade or 11th grade US history to our kids. There's much better, more recent history available. I wouldn't want our med schools to throw away historical textbooks. But I sure don't want them teaching our doctors, future doctors, about the four humors of the body or diseases caused by bad air instead of germs. We've moved beyond that. And likewise, I think we ought to preserve the monument created in 1914 in the heyday of Jim Crow to show future generations how people used to think. But we shouldn't be displaying it on our community's front lawn in front of the courthouse. Every time I see our Confederate dead on it, when I go by it, I think, They're not my Confederate dead. My ancestors were in Europe. The 30% of Pitt County who are African-American certainly must think not my Confederate dead. But we don't have the choice of seeing that monument every time we go there. Pay a traffic ticket, report for jury duty, whatever brings you to the courthouse. You've got to walk under this looming figure of an armed secessionist. So My view is that that piece of political and historical propaganda should be preserved in a museum the way lost cause history books should be preserved in a research library, but it should not be in front of the courthouse to deceive Pitt County residents for another hundred years about what really happened here during the Civil War. So I'll get off my soapbox and tell you that Next week, we'll have uh, a returning guest to the show, Matt Gallman, J. Matthew Gallman, who's co-editor with Gary Gallagher of the book Lens of War, exploring iconic kind of photographs of the Civil War. On June 17th, Rachel Lance from Duke University has an intriguing book about what actually sank the CSS Hunley. It's called In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. And we'll finish up the season with Kenneth R. Rutherford, who has done uh, internationally known work on the phenomenon of landmines and has written a book called America's Buried History, Landmines in the Civil War. So lots of new things for us all to learn about. I'm looking forward to uh, all of those. Uh, I hope you are, too. And I hope our guest is uh, uh, prepared to step in uh, after uh, the host has gone on a brief uh, excursion into uh, offering personal opinion, which I try not to do too much of on the show here. But let's talk tonight about uh, an event that was, or a series of events, I should say, that were as, uh, in their own time, uh, certainly controversial, maybe not as well, I won't say they weren't as significant. In fact, that's a question I'm going to ask. What, what did these add up to? Uh, they are the Fenian raids, the attacks by Irish Americans into Canada, American Civil War veterans trying to fight another war in the decade after America's Civil War. Uh, the book is called When the Irish Invaded Canada, the Incredible True Story of the Civil War Veterans Who Fought for Ireland's Freedom. It's written by Christopher Klein, who is our guest tonight. Uh, Chris, are you there? I am, Jerry. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So tell me, uh, uh, well, let me first check, how are you doing uh, the, with the uh, pandemic and economic uh, issues and civil unrest and so on? Uh, are everything okay?
2: Yeah, yeah, we're, we're doing well. We, uh, what are we, come up on our 100th day sort of uh, Bunkered in. Um, I'm up in Massachusetts, so this is one of the hardest hit areas with uh, pandemics. Uh, but uh, I think luckily our biggest challenge is going to be sort of uh, having the kids around for a bit uh, longer during the summer with the cancellation of summer camps. So uh, so we're doing good up here.
1: Yeah, they, there's a neighborhood pool here. They just reopened under certain conditions. Uh, and my thought was, well, I wouldn't let my kids go to a pool, even under Careful conditions, and then I remembered what yeah. it was like having little kids around the house. And I said, "You know, I think I would just find a way to make that happen uh, because uh, they yeah. need a break. They need to get out and do something." So, yeah. uh, so, so risk minimization. Exactly. You can't. You can't save everything. So you gotta gotta live your life. Um, this book. Uh, this. What, what do you do when you're not writing about the Irish invading Canada? Mm-hmm. T- tell me about your day job.
2: Uh, well, uh, my day job is as a writer, and uh, pretty much most of my writing, uh, when I'm not writing uh, for a book project that I have, is uh, writing for the History Channel's website. Uh, so if you go on to history.com, there's a section there called Stories uh, that has a few new articles posted each week that will tie into maybe something in the news. So certainly been writing a lot recently about uh, the flu of 1918 and uh, other pandemics. And then maybe articles tied into some History Channel programming such as the three night uh, uh, Grant docudrama that ran last week. So did a few articles uh, on on Grant. So uh, pretty much always writing in in the history realm letters for online with the History Channel's website uh, or for
1: the book projects I'm doing. Can I ask how you how you got there? I'm asking, I guess, on behalf of my public history students. I'm always curious about people who find a way to practice history as you are doing uh, outside the classroom. Did, did you decide this was early on, this is what you wanted to do and found a way to do it? Or, or how did you get there?
2: So... I was I was a political science major in college and knew I wanted to do research and writing. and I had worked in a corporate environment for about fifteen years after graduation, and then knew that I really wanted to write about things that were a little bit more interesting to me than uh, than in the corporate world, including history. So um, sort of quit my job, became a, a freelancer. Took a while to make the transition. Um, Joined a lot of writers groups and came across one posting in there uh, about, oh gosh, eight, nine years ago uh, that History Channel was looking to add to its stable of of freelancers. So uh, that's when I first started with them. And I've probably written maybe 400 uh, plus articles for them, I'd say, um, over the past years.
1: Well, I, I think it's a fascinating way to to practice history. First of all, you've got an enormous audience that a lot of other writers would love to have. Uh, and you're not stuck writing about the same topic repeatedly. Uh, I guess the flip side is you're mm-hmm. always having to get something new. Yeah, yeah.
2: But, th- th- I mean, the nice thing about history is it's amazing where you can find these parallels. Um <laughs> do a lot of contemporary events and a lot of just interesting stories. And what I love the most about it is, for the most part, when I'm going into one of these assignments, I may have a little bit of knowledge, uh, but it's a real learning experience for me to go in, do the research, talk to historians, um, interview them. And, you know, it's just really interesting for me as a history buff to be able to sort of increase my knowledge in a certain area, but then it's also part of my job. So, you know, it's it's fantastic for me.
1: it sounds like a good deal. Well, I want to ask about this particular story that many of us, I would guess, listening uh, and me before I read this did not know a great deal about. We're going to take a short break first. We'll come back and talk with author Christopher Klein about When the Irish Invaded Canada, the incredible true story of the Civil War veterans who fought for Ireland's freedom. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
3: Specific for outside the huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel.
4: Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues.
0: The leader in Internet Talk Radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ECU dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z at ecu.edu Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio, I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking with Chris Klein, author of When the Irish Invaded Canada, the Incredible True Story of the Civil War Veterans Who Fought for Ireland's Freedom Um, and Is Chris okay? Uh, Christopher, I don't want to be Some people uh, don't don't go for nicknames. Others do. Do call me Jerry. Yeah, no uh, so uh, this story, the, the obvious background is the the British uh, oppression of Ireland for hundreds of years. A lot of people, I, I've discovered in this casual conversation, don't know uh, anything about that backstory story. They, they're not sure if Ireland is part of the UK or if it's one country or two countries. Or, uh, can you give us uh, a, a thumbnail? Can you condense 700 years of history into 30 seconds for us? <laughs> yeah, I'll give Just, it a
2: try. So <laughs> if, if you're going to use today's parlance, you would say that the Irish who invaded Canada were radicalized by their experiences living under the British. So the luck of the Irish was not something you really wanted to have for about 700 years of history. So Ireland was uh, a colony of uh, England, and if you were an Irish Catholic living in Ireland, your rights were restricted, particularly under the penal laws in the 1700s when you couldn't vote, uh, hold political office, you couldn't freely worship, you couldn't send your kids to Catholic school. Uh, You couldn't own a horse worth more than five pounds. Uh, You were allowed to have one knife, as long as it was chained to a table. And even in death, your rights were restricted because you could not have a Catholic priest preside at a graveside ceremony. And for seven centuries, the English are attempting to take away Ireland's religion, its culture. And then when the potato crop fails in the 1840s, there is a segment of the Irish population who believe that the British are trying to exterminate them altogether, Um, uh, because as the potato crop had failed, crops were still being harvested and sent off to the mill cities of England. And uh, the British government took a very laissez-faire approach to relief efforts, uh, so, as I said, you you get this segment of the Irish population, these Irish diehard patriots, uh, who are really radicalized by that experience and the hundred years uh, of living under English rule.
1: Now, a lot of the one of the main responses to the the Great Famine was to leave Ireland, and uh, in many cases, come to the United States. So. Uh, we can assume that these people coming to the country, not speaking the language, different, uh, different religion, no useful skills necessarily or job prospects. Uh, surely we welcomed them with open arms and made them part of the American family right away. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm feeling exceptionally sarcastic tonight.
2: Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have about a million of the Irish who who are going to end up Mm -hmm. in the United States and um, they are going to come. And as you're alluding to, they're going to encounter much of the same attitudes and prejudice that they had just left behind in Ireland. And I think it's also important to know that this wasn't a free choice for a lot of the Irish either. Um, they Their land back in Ireland, for a lot of them, was owned by English landlords, and the way the British government set up the relief efforts was that they made the English landlords pay for the relief for their tenants, and in many cases, it was cheaper for these landlords to ship the Irish off to North America than it was to pay for their relief efforts back in Ireland. So when they come to the United States, they come in such numbers, and they are so different than any of the newcomers to the country before because a quarter of them are speaking uh, the Irish language. Uh, They are practicing a religion that's completely alien to most uh, Americans of the time. They're not hungering for American ideals. They're literally starving for food. And it puts a lot of strain on... uh, the social institutions, uh, primarily in the cities along the Atlantic seaboard where they are going to land and they don't have many resources to go much further than a few miles from the docks where they're going to be in cities such as Boston and New York, Baltimore, Philadelphia, uh, New Orleans as well. Uh, And as the years go by, the backlash really starts to develop, particularly by the 1850s with the rise of the Know Nothing Movement and the way the Irish had survived for seven centuries was they would sort of coil up like a snake for their own protection. So they'd come together in church parishes and fraternal organizations like the Ancient Order of Hibernians. And they're going to do the same thing when they come here to the United States as well to try to, uh, that's how they would react to the, to the prejudice that they were finding.
1: So is this where they first begin to, Think about uh, striking back at Great Britain, striking back at, at at England through its Canadian outpost. Or maybe we should start by defining Canada. There, there isn't mm-hmm. even a country called Canada uh, before the Civil War.
2: Right. So Canada is uh, like Ireland, a property of uh, the British Empire. So it is, uh, it is another British colony. And there's been a long tradition of uprisings in Ireland. Uh, there was, most recently to the time period we're talking about, there was one in 1798. And then there was, during the Great Hunger, uh, when the failure of the hail crop, an uprising called the Young Ireland Movement in 1848. And it's those leaders of that movement who are going to reignite the revolutionary spirit uh, uh, in the late 1850s after the end of the end of the Great Hunger. And in 1858, they'll be forming an organization called the Irish Republican Brotherhood in Ireland, and then a sister organization in the United States called the Fenian Brotherhood. And the idea is that. With the freedoms that America provided, and away from the British rule, that the Irish in America are going to raise money and raise weapons that they will send back to Ireland to launch another revolution there. Uh, as the years progress, the Fenian Brotherhood is actually going to have a difference of opinion, and there will be a rise in this movement of people who think that why are we trying to foment a revolution back in Ireland that has failed repeatedly? when we can strike the British Empire right uh, on the northern border of the United States? Uh, For many Irish in the cities in the eastern seaboard, just an overnight train away. Why try to go all the way to Ireland when we can hit the British uh, where we can literally just walk across the border and and attack them?
1: Was this kind of thinking taking place before the American Civil War? Does it rise after the war, during the war? When when does this idea first appear? So the idea of striking Canada really
2: takes hold after the Civil War. The whole plan from the start of the Fenian Brotherhood in 1868 is is to have this revolution in Ireland. But the years go by, and the revolution keeps getting put off. And then in 1865, the English are actually going um, to—they've infiltrated the organization— they're going to crack down on it, they arrest all the leaders, and this idea of attacking Ireland is really dead in the water for at least the time being. And what's occurring at the same time is that in the United States there's this really swell of Anglophobia coming on because of what happens during the Civil War. So, of course, even during the Trent Affair there's talk of, of war happening between the United States and, and Great Britain, but uh, there's a tremendous animosity by 1865 at Britain because of it's in British ports that are built the Confederate warships like the CSS Alabama, and at the end of the war, um, the United States is seeking reparations from the British, and at the same time, there's a lot of animosity towards Canada as well because it's from there that you. Uh, had a haven for escaped Confederate POWs, Union Draft Dodgers, but then also this cell of the Confederate Secret Service that launched the raids on banks in St. Albans, Vermont, and plotted the firebombing of theaters in New York City. And then there's even thought that it was involved uh, in plotting the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. So... The there's really sort of the synchronicity between the long-standing animosity towards the British by the Irish and this groundswell that's occurring in 1865 among uh, Americans towards both Great Britain and Canada that's, that's really starting to con- converge in those months after the end of the Civil War.
1: Then you've got a couple other factors. Uh, you've got suddenly a million men, uh, more than a million men who are experienced as soldiers and uh, returning to civil life and you've got all that equipment they had. But I w- you mentioned some I, t- I want to ask about names. Uh, who were there any individuals who really led this or, or got this started in the United States? Who were some of the big players?
2: So when the organization starts in 1858, the real driver behind the organization uh, in Ireland was a man named James Stevens, who was a veteran of this uh, young Ireland uprising in 1848. Um, Has a real colorful story during that revolution when he's in a shootout with the local police and is left for dead on the side of the road uh, and sort of pulls a page out of Mark Twain and Fakes his own death. They thought he was left for dead. He survived. They run his local, uh, they run his obituary in his local newspaper. His father will bury a coffin full of rocks in a local cemetery and James Stevens will abscond, uh, to England and then over to France where he meets up with another revolutionary, uh, named John O'Mahony. And O'Mahony will then be the founder of the Young Ireland movement. Uh, in the United States in 1858. He's the real driver uh, of the organization uh, for many years. And then by the time of, of the end of the Civil War, when there's this, this difference of opinion inside the Fenian Brotherhood on whether to keep with the plan of the revolution in Ireland or attacking Canada, uh, this splinter group called the Men of Action are the ones who are the backing this idea of invading Canada. And they are led by another Irish immigrant named William Roberts. Uh, But the the man who's putting together the battle plan to invade Canada is uh, General Thomas William Sweeney, uh, who really is one of the most colorful figures. And to me, the epitome of the fighting Irish, uh, he had come to America when he was 11 years old, was swept overboard, uh, but managed to spend 30 minutes in the Atlantic before he was rescued fought in the Mexican-American wow. War where he had an army amputated but remained uh, in the army, got into a fist fight with a superior officer and whipped him with his one remaining arm um, and then fought in the Civil War he took two gunshots to his one remaining arm during the Battle of Shiloh shot in the leg as well. Uh, so gives 20 years of his life to the cause of the Union, but after the Civil War his heart still really remained with Ireland and he takes a leave from the Union Army to become the Secretary of War of the Fenian Brotherhood to plot this invasion of Canada.
1: Now, the the schism within the uh, Brotherhood between those who want to strike at Canada and those who want to follow the traditional uh, route of, of fomenting rebellion in Ireland is one of the themes that runs through this book. There, there's uh, it's one schism after another. I was. Put in mind of the, the conflict between the People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front in the great movie Life of Brian, where the two uh, radical groups could not agree on fighting the Roman mm-hmm. Empire because they were too busy fighting each other. Uh, yep. that, that just seems to happen again and again, thwarting all the plans. Uh, one of the first attacks you, where, where they actually try to put this together, uh, you call the chapter the Eastport Fizzle. That doesn't sound like that work went very well. No, no, and
2: this this occurs because John O'Mahony, who's the founder of the Fenian Brotherhood, sees this schism opening up for the organization and fears that he's losing control. And he basically agrees then to launch an invasion from Maine to seize Campobello Island, which you know most people will know as being Franklin Roosevelt's summer home, uh, right in the uh, Passamaquoddy Bay, uh, right on the border between the United States and Canada, and he's willing to at least approve this where they could seize Campbell Island and then use this as sort of a staging ground to launch an invasion of Ireland, use it to send out privateers, use it as a place to bring their weapons that they can use across the Atlantic, and... um, as you alluded to, things did not go too well. So, Omani's heart really wasn't in this uh, In this uh, invasion plan. The ship leaves New York City, uh, where the senior brotherhood is fully operating out in the open. They have their own president, John Omani. They have their own constitution, their own declaration of independence. They have their own capital building, right on the north side of Union Square in this fine brownstone mansion, which was the home of the Irish Republican Exile, and they're selling war bombs to finance their missions as well. So, uh, he approves the launch of the boat with the weapons, but unfortunately, has a change of heart, recalls the boat, so that when his soldiers show up in Eastport, Maine, they don't have any of their weapons. So. For the most part, they spend a few weeks just lingering around Eastport, Maine. Uh, they do launch a nighttime raid where they burn down uh, a, uh, a building on one of the islands, take a Union Jack off one of the custom houses, and pretty much end up coming back to New York with their uh, tail between their legs, at which point the soldiers more or less demand that Omani. Resign his position, which is going to happen uh, after that, and and with Omani leaving the organization, really the people who are left, for the most part, are going to be these die-hard pro-Canada invasion uh, people, such as uh, Thomas William Sweeney, uh, who who was not involved in this foray through in, in Maine. Uh, basically, Omani's trying to steal the thunder of. Thomas, William, Sweeney, and 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 the Men of Action,
1: and it fails horribly. The Men of Action do get their turn in 1866, launching a much more significant attack. Uh, we'll take a, another break. Come back and talk about that, uh, possibly the high point in many ways of the uh, Fenian movement against Canada. It's all described in the book, When the Irish Invaded Canada, The Incredible True Story of the Civil War Veterans Who Fought for Ireland's Freedom. The author and our guest tonight is Christopher Klein. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
4: If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited
0: That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Christopher Klein, author of When the Irish Invaded Canada, the incredible true story of the Civil War veterans who fought for Ireland's freedom in 1866, the uh, Fenian Brotherhood put together an actual battle plan to invade Canada, a three-pronged attack coming left wing from Chicago across uh, the Great Lakes, uh, center crossing at Cleveland, right wing in, in uh, upper New York. Uh, when, Chris, when you describe this attack, by, you have perhaps my favorite line in the book where General Lynch is ordered to cross 5,000 men across Lake Erie at Cleveland, which you say he was going to do, the only thing missing were boats and 5,000 men and General Lynch. Uh, there was nothing there at all. Yep. This, uh, it, it looks like it's going to be another spectacular failure like the Eastport fizzle, but this attack actually turned into something. What What happened here?
2: So, as you mentioned, this is, the big attack that Sweeney puts together and the hope is to basically put a chokehold on the St. Lawrence River um, around Montreal and Quebec, which really was the lifeblood of, uh, of Canada's commerce. So this whole battle plan is sort of rushed uh, into fruition after the Eastport fizzle because the Fenian Brotherhood was Really afraid it was losing all sorts of momentum and, and, and needed to act and act quickly. So they went a lot quicker than what Sweeney wanted to. Sweeney actually wants a wintertime invasion so that the uh, river crossings wouldn't be as much of a problem, but he's forced to move ahead in uh, late May 1866 and sends out the calls to all the men to head to the border. And he finds out that the boats are missing in Chicago, no one's there in Detroit, Cleveland, everyone's missing. So what he does is basically send all the men he's got in Cleveland to Buffalo, which uh, he just wants to get men across into Canada with the expectation that as soon as he can get Fenian soldiers into Canada, that he's going to get thousands and thousands of Fenians in the United States to get on the trains, head north, join in the battle. And he also expects that he's going to get uh, many of the quarter million Irish living in Canada to join in this fight as well. And not to mention uh, maybe some of the French Canadians in, uh, in Quebec and in the Maritime provinces as well. So he, very highly inflated expectations, but... Sweeney just wants to get men across the Niagara River and into Canadian territory as quickly as he can. And so in the early morning hours of June 1st, 1866, uh, about 800 uh, men, uh, a mixture of Union vets, Confederate vets, you've got uh, men who are showing up in their Union blues, you've got members, former members of Louisiana Tigers, wearing their Confederate graves, Some are wearing Fenian green, green uniforms, the real hodgepodge uh, army, uh, that uh, man named John O'Neill is going to be the right man in the right place at the right time because he is the highest-ranking person that they can find, and General John O'Neill is given command of uh, the Army of the Irish Republic, to cross into Canada in the early morning hours of June 1st, and uh, he will do that. He will lead this invasion uh, across the Niagara River with about 800 men to start the
1: to start the the big invasion of Canada. So it's it's not a lot, but you know he's got high hopes. All these people will join him. Uh, it's reminiscent of Lee invading Maryland, hoping uh, the state will rise up, but. The result is somewhat the same. What about uh, Canadian resistance? Again, Canada is, is still not even uh, a single country. It's a sort of collection of colonies, of British colonies. Are are Canadians ready to defend themselves?
2: So they are not stationed across the border, although they, this has been chatter for months on end that the Fenians would be launching this invasion. And part of the reason it started to fall apart was it front page news in the newspapers when groups of Irishmen carrying rifles were getting on trains from Nashville and Louisville and, and New Orleans. So it really isn't a surprise that this invasion is coming. Um, the, the problem was that it was sort of like the, the boy who cried wolf. Um, mm. This had been reported that it was coming for months and months and it never happened. And the Canadians had mobilized a lot of forces on St. Patrick's Day in 1866, expecting that to be the day of the invasion, and then nothing happened. So the defense officials are very reluctant to, to call out all the defense forces again, and basically are taking an attitude of, we'll, we'll deal with it if this actually happens, because there's a lot of skepticism that um, the Fenians actually are going to follow through on this. So John O'Neill finds uh, the Niagara River and Ontario completely undefended uh, when he crosses, and he will not encounter any Canadian defense forces until a full 24 hours after he is um, after he's landed in Canada uh, in a town called Ridgeway, which is about 15 miles south of uh, Niagara Falls. Uh, he will on the morning of June 2nd see a
1: large Canadian defense force 3 times suicide heading his way. So, Ridgeway becomes the engagement for which O'Neill will be remembered. Um, just sort of jumping ahead, is there anything there marking what happened uh, today? Do you know? There is, yes. Yeah. So if you go there today, um, there
2: is some information panels, uh, there is uh, a monument uh, to those who died there as well. Uh, you can, uh, many of the same roads that were there are in the same formation uh, today. So uh, you can get a bit of uh, a sense of, the, of what the lay of the land uh, is there. But uh, yes, Canadian Park Service uh, has uh, some um, some. Waymarking signs and uh, a little place that you can go there and, and learn a bit about the Battle of Ridgeway uh, that takes place on June second, eighteen sixty six.
1: And so, so this battle, um, it, it is really it, it's a skirmish by Civil War standards, but people are killed. It, it's yep. uh, these guys are not playing.
2: Yep. Yeah. So there's probably. Uh, Close to 20 Canadians who are going to die in this battle, about five or six of the Fenians as well. And John O'Neill is outnumbered about three to one in this battle. But what he has the advantage of is he's got Civil War vets who are used to being in a fighting situation. Canadian defense forces are a mixture of, you know, farmers who haven't fired guns ever before in their lives. Uh, there's uh, one regiment that is made up of students from a uh, university in Toronto who had been studying for their finals and got a knock on their door saying that uh, good news you don't have to study for your finals anymore. Bad news is you need to be at the drill shed in downtown Toronto at 4.30 tomorrow morning where we're going to give you a gun, send you off to the war front to repel the southern invaders. Uh, and so you have a very inexperienced uh, Canadian defense force, and that in- inexperience is going to show during the course of this battle where uh, O'Neill really uh, is able to, uh, although he doesn't have much experience commanding forces, really shows himself to be a pretty good general, uh, does sort of a risky maneuver where he pulls his men back uh, to sort of feign a retreat and gives them the signal to charge that really sends the Canadian forces into disarray. They see John O'Neill coming up over on a ridge and a horse and think a cavalry charge is coming. They're put into the wrong formation because of it, uh, realize it too late, at which point they are basically throwing down their guns and running for their lives off the battlefield. And John O'Neill has engineered uh, this, this victory uh, over the Canadian defense forces at, at the Battle of Ridgeway.
1: Now, we know, there's no spoiler alert necessary here. We know that uh, the Irish are not going to conquer Canada. It is, in fact, going to be mm-hmm. an independent country. Uh, so I'm not spoiling anything. But what, how, how, does, how does this end for O'Neill? How does this expedition not succeed in defeating the British?
2: So O'Neill will realize after the battle, and he's wondering where all the Canadians and American reinforcements are, so he circles back to the Niagara River, uh, where there was another shootout through the streets of Fort Erie that he's going to win this battle as well. But he discovers that American warships have cut the Fenian the supply lines. So he knows that with no more men coming over, no more supplies, that the mission just cannot succeed. So um, he will end up retreating back to the United States. Before he does, he'll line up all the Canadian prisoners that they have taken who think that they are about ready to, front to face a firing squad, but instead O'Neill will go down the line, shake each man's hand one by one, and vow that he's going to return to Canada with a much larger army, and O'Neill will turn out to be a man of his word, uh, returning to Canada again in 1870. Uh, as the head of the Fenian Brotherhood, in charge of a full army unit wearing green uniforms, which was called the Irish Republican
1: Army. So the the first uh, the, the attack that ends at the Battle of Ridgeway uh, does not succeed. In 1870, as you say, there will be uh, another uh, campaign. The United States government isn't sympathetic to uh, to this. Obviously, it, it violates neutrality act for American civilians to be invading other countries. Uh, but I want to ask sort of the big question as we have just a few minutes to go. Uh, you describe the, the 1870 campaign. Uh, it has its own foibles and, and moments that uh, justify the use of the word incredible in the title. But ultimately, as I was three quarters of the way through the book, I started thinking, well, I have to ask, what's the point? I mean, it, it's it's comic opera. It's amusing. Uh these, these pinprick invasions of a few hundred men that are repelled by militia eventually, uh, is there any long-range significance to it? And well, uh, I'll let you
2: Yeah, and, I, tell and us. I think there is. I mean, as you said, it's, yeah. like, I, I can't decide if John O'Neill really is the star of a comic opera or Shakespearean tragedy because he cannot mm-hmm. ever let go of this idea of uh, invading Canada uh, time and time again. But I think the Fenian Brotherhood. There's a few lasting legacies. One is actually does bring independence to part of the British Empire, just not the one they expected. Canada, uh, Canada will come into formation with its own federal parliament because they don't believe the British did a good job defending them in 1866, which uh, was. But for the cause of the Fenians, I think what they do is they set up this transatlantic structure of raising money and weapons in the United States and helping the cause in Ireland and really make the United States a player in Anglo-Irish relations that you will see really helps with the eventual independence of Ireland um, in the 1920s and carries on, you know, into the 1980s and, and 90s with uh, with Northern Ireland as well. This really all starts in the 1850s with the Fenian Brotherhood, Um, and and carries on even to the present day. And I think really what these Fenians did, though, was that after the attempted uprising in Ireland in 1848, they're the ones who take the torch of revolution from that generation, and they keep the revolutionary spirit alive. Very easily could have died off after 1848 in uh, another failed revolution with the great hunger, famine, immigration, all that combined, but even in the United States, these Irish don't lose their sense of duty to their homeland, and they, they keep fighting for it, and then, although they're not successful, they, they know that if we keep the torch alive, it could be passed on to another generation at will, and that is going to occur with the Easter Rising in 1916 and the subsequent um, Uh, Civil War, War of Independence uh, in in Ireland, that when the Irish Proclamation is read in the streets of Dublin in 1916, very prominently is focused on mention of Ireland's exiled children in America. And really without the financial support uh, of the Irish revolutionaries from the United States, that independence movement may not have happened in time period that it did uh, in Ireland in 1920s. And that whole organization gets to start with these scene Brotherhood
1: in the nineteen fifties. Yeah, I, I was really struck by that. Uh, what well, you mentioned that the proclamation in nineteen sixteen, when the Irish Republic is, is proclaimed, uh, right right at the start, they mention, as you say, the exiled uh, mm-hmm. children of Ireland in the United States, uh, and that link of raising money and weapons. Uh, you know, for better or worse, through the times of the troubles in the '60s and '70s Whoa. and on through the 1990s, uh, you're absolutely right. There's certainly a strong connection here. So it's not just an entertaining book, uh, but it's a. I, I'll say I enjoyed thoroughly reading it. Uh, I learned about a topic I knew very little about, but uh, also found the, the story just just a page turner. Uh, it's well written, it's, it's entertaining, Thank it's well researched. Uh, so listeners, uh, if you want to delve into something off the beaten track of Civil War history, uh, you'll want to read When the Irish Invaded Canada, the incredible true story of the Civil War veterans who fought for Ireland's freedom. It's written by Christopher Klein, who's been our guest tonight. Chris, thanks so much for being on Civil War Talk Radio. Sorry, it's been great, I really appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening
0: to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.